Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined from Aotearoa, New Zealand by MRX Dentith, who is a doctor of philosophy the author of The Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories, as well as the editor of the recent book Taking Conspiracy Theories Seriously, and an associate professor at Beijing Normal University. Thanks for joining us, Em. An absolute pleasure. I guess, just to begin with, I, I hate to start the interview on an antagonistic note, but I was recently watching a talk you gave in which you mentioned that the Prime Minister of New Zealand had once stolen your shopping trolley, and I was curious as to which Prime Minister that was. That would be the current Prime Minister of the country, Jacinda Ardern, and it's a long-standing vendetta between the Prime Minister and myself. I, I find it hard to believe that Cindy would do that. Well, let's just say it was before she was Prime Minister, back when she was merely a backbench MP, and so maybe she felt that was the appropriate kind of behaviour. I mean, I should point out for people who are concerned that maybe I've got this r- raging vendetta against our PM. We both lived in the same suburb in Auckland. We both went to the supermarket on the same day. We both spied the small shopping tro- trolley, which is the ideal trolley you want when you're shopping only for a few items. We both dashed towards it and she got to it first and i tweeted about it and she admitted to the crime online so frankly it's a public a a matter of public record ah so not just another conspiracy well i mean she may have had something in for me but i don't exactly know what it would have been back then to start us off seriously you recently edited the book taking conspiracy theories seriously why should we take conspiracy theories seriously Well, we should take conspiracy theories seriously because we should take the threat of conspiracy in our political spaces seriously. So there's been a kind of a a big debate in the academic literature as to what to do about actual cases of conspiracy theories which turn out to be true, whether they're your Watergate affairs from the 1960s, the Gulf of Tonkin incident, the pesky weapons of mass destruction narrative that the US and the UK engaged in in 2003. And there's a group of philosophers who have labelled themselves as particularists who have argued that because we know these conspiracies have occurred, and we know that other conspiracies have occurred as well, what we need to do is be on the lookout for conspiracies, because most of us will agree that these events were not good events. They've led to massive loss of trust in the political establishment in different countries around the world. And so we should be vigilant and look for conspiracies which are happening in our polities. And that means we need to take conspiracy theories seriously, because conspiracy theories are posited explanations of events that say a conspiracy is behind it. Does that imply that we should trust governments and other authorities? Oh, no. I mean, given the history of conspiracy by governments, there's a big question as to exactly what our level of trust should be towards them. So, I mean, if you're a particularist who is concerned about conspiracies going on, part of your concern is, do we live in the right kind of political culture where it's appropriate to have a simple trust in government? Or do you live in a kind of political culture where, because you know government's up to no good all the time, you should be very, very suspicious of what government's up to? And I'm kind of informed by this by living in Romania for a year and a half, because Romania has a very overtly corrupt government. 
And Romanians are thus very likely to think that their government is up to no good because often their government is up to no good. So they're much more likely to entertain what we call conspiracy theories about what the government is doing versus what it's claiming to do. And that might be slightly different from, say, the average New Zealander who has a high level of trust in their government because the government virtually never does any ill. We did see in the last uh, year and a bit a sort of an upsurge in conspiracy thinking around the world. Could you tell us a bit about how that manifested in New Zealand? So we had the no sort of one of these things I'm trying to work out the best way to put it. So we had the luck, and I'm putting that in air quotes, of having a general election last year, which meant that not only did we have an election which was basically a referendum on our government's approach to dealing with COVID-19, it also allowed a lot of people who had conspiracy theories about the origin, transmission, and purpose of COVID-19 ample airtime to start debating these things online and in town halls around the country. And so we did see the emergence of a whole bunch of people who were going, well, you know, this COVID-19 thing, it seems a little bit weird. It's come out of nowhere. It's led to what appears to be absolutely draconian, almost fascist-like control of our society. We've been told by our government that we're not going to be able to reopen to the rest of the world for years to come. We think there's something suspicious going on here. And so we had an awful lot of conspiracy rhetoric around both the origin of COVID-19 the transmission of COVID-19 in the community, the purpose of the pandemic, and also the associated conspiracy theories about our government being involved in some plot to bring around a socialist new world order. You've drawn attention to the distinction within philosophy between particularist and generalist accounts of conspiracies and Conspiracy theories, conspiracies are admitted to exist generally. What is it about or can a distinction be made between the existence of conspiracies and conspiracy theories and conspiracism as a general worldview? So, yes, there's a whole bunch of work in the social sciences, particularly in social psychology, which talks about this thing called conspiracism or conspiracist ideation. The idea that there are certain people in the world who are orientated towards believing that conspiracies occur at a kind of incidence level that they really don't. So these people are kind of the orientated to see conspiracies where maybe conspiracies don't exist. And so there's this worry here that if you're a particularist who is going, well, no, we need to assess conspiracy theories on the evidence and work out whether we should believe this one or disregard the other one, that if there are people out there who are promoting conspiracy theories for reasons which have got nothing to do with arguments and evidence, but has something entirely to do with some feature of their psychology, then it doesn't really matter what the evidence is. These people are going to believe or disbelieve these conspiracy theories regardless. Now, I'm I'm a little bit skeptical that people by and large believe conspiracy theories because of some kind of psychological pathology. I tend to take it that most people are attentive to evidence, but sometimes make the wrong kind of evidential calculus. So they see conspiracies where they aren't because they don't understand a historical or political process. They underestimate or overestimate the kind of history of conspiracy within their polity. But yes, there is a view, as I say, particularly in social psychology, this is no most of this debate really needs to be going on at the level of the psychological because there are features of people's individual psychology which makes them more or less prone to see conspiracies in the world around them. There's also an attempt, rightly or wrongly, to link conspiracism with religiosity, and some have argued that conspiracy thinking or conspiracy theories could be conceived as some kind of civic religion. What do you make of that proposal? I mean, there's a long history, particularly in the social sciences, of associating any belief or set of beliefs you don't like with either supernaturalism or religious belief, depending on whether you come from a culture where religious belief is taken to be in some way suspicious or weird. So yes, there is this kind of movement by some social psychologists and some social scientists to then go, well, look, 
this belief in conspiracy theories appears to be some kind of modern day religious belief where we're taking the the faith in the state or we're taking the fear that there are these untoward secretive movers in the background which in the old days were kind of demonic forces and are now taken to be evil politicians and in the same way that we can explain why religious belief might be irrational or why belief in the supernatural might be irrational we can draw a strict analogy between that kind of belief structure and the belief structures we find by conspiracy theorists and as i say this is part of a long history of doing this kind of guilt by association here of saying well, look there's a a class of belief we're already suspicious of belief in x also looks suspicious well if we think then this class of belief we're already suspicious of can also be applied to x as well then we've got an easy to use explanation as to why you shouldn't believe in x either i don't think this is a particularly good move because there's whilst there are some conspiracy theories which certainly seem to have kind of religious aspects to it if you spend any time listening to Alex Jones these days he's always talking about his personal faith in Jesus Christ and how every single democratic politician you could possibly name is either a demon or has been possessed by a demon and in a similar way David Icke in the UK with his alien shape-shifting reptiles there's a whole bunch of religious terminology and iconography there but if this is a feature it's only a feature of a very small number of people who believe in conspiracy theories in part because the kind of conspiracy theories which resemble religious belief tend to actually be quite rare and fairly unusual in the conspiracy theorist literature your book was called uh, taking conspiracy theory seriously and i think it's fairly clear that governments around the world are taking conspiracy theory seriously uh, in the context of the global pandemic uh, there's a lot of energy and uh, resources being thrown at tackling the the problem of conspiracy theories what do you make of that and do you think that they're sometimes missing some uh, important points yeah, I mean, what's been kind of interesting about the COVID-19 pandemic globally is that suddenly a whole bunch of people are really, really interested in what they take to be the threat of conspiracy theory. So when you get discussions about the problem of conspiracy theory in the academic literature, most of that discussion is about the idea that conspiracy theories are kind of, to use air quotes, mad, bad, and dangerous and they need to be controlled for because they have deleterious social consequences. Sometimes people will point out that actually conspiracy theories can have positive social consequences in that they can make people more aware of, say, structural inequalities or bad things that governments might do. And with COVID-19, suddenly governments are going, oh, so there's we're trying to do a positive thing here. We're trying to control a pandemic. We're trying to bring about public health initiatives. We're suddenly being very aware that there's a whole bunch of people who have conspiracy theories about what we're doing, and particularly these particular initiatives we're doing with respect to the pandemic. We want to go and look at the literature to see exactly how people respond to these things. And they're largely looking at literature, which is looking at conspiracy theories, which don't really resemble the kind of problem we're looking at now. So they're looking at literature, which is, say, a few years old, looking at what conspiracy theories might have looked like five or six years ago, as opposed to looking at the way in which conspiracy theories about the pandemic are being expressed now and the kind of weird and wonderful mutations. Now, I'm saying that also being completely aware that I've been involved in a few projects in Aotearoa, New Zealand, advising groups which are in contact with governmental departments on exactly how to respond to conspiracy theories. So on one hand, you've got responses which are looking at literature which might be slightly old and not appropriate for the current moment. At the same time, there are people reaching out to academics doing work in the here and now to try and work out what is the most appropriate response. But the problem kind of remains that we're in the midst of a pandemic and a whole bunch of weird views about that pandemic. And it's quite hard to reason yourself out of a problem when you're in the midst of an emerging 
problem be a lot easier to deal with this stuff in retrospect than it is to actually deal with it whilst you're in the middle or perhaps even still the beginning of a crisis that might be going on for quite some time. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. MRX Dentith about conspiracy theories and conspiracy theory theories. If I could just editorialise for a second, I'm, I've been interviewed a little bit about conspiracy theories over the past year, and weirdly something that uh, the quote that I always make that never gets used is this idea that, it, of course, it would be absurd for anyone to look at the current neoliberal power structures that we have uh, across the West and not think that there was something a little bit askew or amiss. And things like the advice on masks, I think, is a good example where originally we were told that masks did not have that much effect on COVID-19. And this was probably because we didn't have enough masks to go around. And when that fact changed, uh, the expertise changed. Do you think that states have a, a responsibility to perhaps look inwards in terms of combating conspiracy theories? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is something very, very odd about the liberal paradigm and the neoliberal paradigm in particular, which runs the West, and the fact that it does seem that money seems to flow in one direction, which is upwards, and not kind of flow into that kind of equality we were told the free market was going to provide us with. The problem, of course, is that once you start talking about power structures and people who are in charge of those power structures, most people don't tend to be particularly inward-looking, asking have we actually built society the right way? People tend to go, no, 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 everything is fine. We just need to tinker with the marginal or edge cases, and then we can bring everything under control. So I agree entirely. There should be a lot of introspection going on here, looking at how exactly have we structured our society and who have we put the power in the hands of. But the problem is the kind of people who have the ability to make those structural changes often end up being the people who, if you're a conspiracy theorist of a particular stripe, are deliberately setting up the system such that it's never going to change. Or if you're an institutional theorist who thinks that many things can be explained just by the fact that people don't think about things particularly deeply and happy with the structures they're in, people are going to go, well, you know, it's a uh, I mean, it is a problem. It's a problem that can be resolved at another time, uh, but now is not the right time to be looking at it. Now is the time to actually reason our way out, out of the crisis. Speaking of self-reflection and inner visions and the state, uh, another term that's emerged along with others like uh, fake news is um, the deep state, which is uh, held to exist and to, in some way, uh, fundamentally inform government policy and, and social policy generally. How does this concept of the deep state uh, fit or not fit into your account of conspiracy thinking? Well, the great thing about the term the deep state is that no one really seems to know exactly what it refers to. So when Donald Trump talks about this deep state, he seems to be talking about it in a slightly different way than, say, traditional left-wing analyses of the deep state have focused on, which is more the military-industrial complex. So for Donald Trump, the deep state was the swamp that needed to be drained, and largely the Democratic Party. In traditional left-wing analysis in the US, the deep state was something much more akin to the vested interests which are involved in lobbying the government and the military-industrial complex doing things. And so the great thing, once again that's in air quotes about the deep state, is it kind of sits as a placeholder in many conspiracy theorists' analyses of things. So it often looks as if people are talking about the same thing, when actually they might be talking about radically different things. And so as a particularist who is concerned with looking out for actual conspiracies out there in the world, but also as someone who's going, well, you know, there are unwarranted conspiracy theories out there, and you need to be able to tell a story as to why we ought to believe some conspiracy theories, and we ought to dismiss other conspiracy theories. Once you start getting vague or imprecise terms, such as things like the deep state, that ends up being a kind of red flag for going, okay, so we now need to work out exactly what these people are referring to, and also working out what kind of analyses they're using to 
to try to get to their conclusion that a conspiracy exists. And maybe we can show that this conspiracy theory is good or bad, depending on what happens when we unpack the term deep state to try to work out who they're actually implying is involved in a conspiracy and what they take the end point or goal of that conspiracy to be. Another similar term or concept to the deep state is that of parapolitics. And uh, there's a publication in the UK called Lobster, which has been examining parapolitics, which which it defines as the impact of the intelligence and security services on history and politics since uh, 1983. And it, I guess, would be probably more likely to be situated on the left, generally speaking, than uh, much con- contemporary conspiracist thinking on the right. How do you suggest or propose someone could go about investigating this kind of nebulous notion of the, the deep state or parapolitics in a way that you think is most productive and, and philosophically satisfying? I mean, that's a really good question because how we investigate secretive organisations we know exist and are engaged in secretive secretive activities all the time, which is basically the security apparatus in almost every developed nation around the world, has of course been a long-standing issue, especially since in many cases you do not have any direct access to what they're doing due to the fact that they're doing things under the cloak of secrecy and thus they're allowed to keep what they're doing secret from the public, not just in the moment, but for years afterwards. One of the interesting things about the research that still goes on into exactly what the Allies were doing in World War Two, is that there's an awful lot of stuff that was done at Bletchley Park, where the Enigma code was cracked by Alan Turing and his team, which is still under the Official Secrets Act today. Now, I'm not much of a mathematician, but I believe World War Two ended somewhere in the first half of the 20th century, you know, ni- 1945 or so, I believe we're in the year of our Lord, 2021. That seems like 70 years has passed between winning the war and things still being kept secret about it now. So if we're in a situation where we still can't even find out what was going on in the kind of secret service activity or war secret activity in World War II, There's a big question as to when we might ever be able to get legitimate access, and by legitimate access there, I mean authorised access by state operators into exactly what's going on there. At which point, if you're researching what the security apparatus is doing, you're very much reliant upon whistleblowers and people who are leaking information to the press, journalists, historians, or academics. And then you've got an entire issue about whether the people that you're getting that information from are actually acting sincerely or honestly, or whether it's quite possible there's some kind of entrapment or honey trap going on where the intelligence agencies are aware that you're doing investigation into them. So they're making sure that information is being put out to make sure either they look right or to make you look stupid. And so it just ends up being an absolute minefield. And it's, I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. You look at the work that Seymour Hirsch has done in the US, so things like the My Lai Massacre and the like, and that was entirely reliant on information basically being leaked to a journalist and then being able to find the little bits of documentation that confirmed or denied those particular stories. And then, of course, in Hirsch's later career, He was relying on the same kind of anonymous sources in his media reporting, but getting a lot more pushback because he didn't have the documentation to be able to show that his claims were actually true, which led to people going, maybe he's being used by people in foreign intelligence agencies to make America look bad, or Maybe he has been making some of this data up along the way. So yeah, investigating this stuff is difficult, and I don't think there's an easy solution to being able to work out exactly how to research this parapolitical material, despite the fact that it seems like it's a really important thing that needs to be done. 
Speaking of the Second World War, often when I think about uh, conspiracy theories, I'm drawn to one that's often touted as being a kind of um, grandparent to many contemporary theories, and that's to do with uh, the protocols and the, the czarist forgery that uh, purported to demonstrate that uh, Jews were running things in Russia and everywhere else. This is presumably one of the, the dangers that's, uh, that is uh, anti-Semitism is one of the dangers that's associated with conspiracy thinking. Do you think that that's the case? And how do you account for the ways in which conspiracist thinking uh, seems to have been used by uh, various actors in bad or good faith to give some sustenance to anti-Semitic and other forms of racist uh, belief? I mean, there's no doubt there's far too much anti-Semitism in an awful lot of the conspiracy theories that we encounter. And by far too much, there should be no anti-Semitism in the conspiracy theories that we encounter. This has been a problematic narrative told by Europeans for hundreds of years, basically blaming an ethnic group in Europe for issues of Europe's own making. So the Jews have been a scapegoat in European politics for the sheer fact that European politicians just weren't willing to admit that they had structured a system such that they needed people to blame for why the system didn't work. And so, yes, there is far too much anti-Semitism in a lot of the conspiracy theories we see. And there's a big question there as to whether that means that conspiracy theories as a class are kind of tainted by that association of anti-Semitism, or whether there's a concerted effort by certain anti-Semites who are aware that their views are technically not particularly popular in the general populace, but they can kind of ride the crypto anti-Semitism of disguising their anti-Semitic statements through the expression of particular conspiracy theories that talk about not the Jews, but say the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers in like-minded communities who are concerned that there are secretive actors plotting behind the scenes trying to bring about some ill end to society as we know it. Uh, one conspiracy theory that has gotten a lot of attention in the past few years is that of QAnon. We ask everyone who uh, researches conspiracy theories that we have on the show this question, but uh, what's QAnon in New Zealand like? Oh, that's a good question, because when I actually think about QAnon, I, I do think of kind of the American examples. So there have been a few QAnon stands in Aotearoa, New Zealand. There was a weird period uh, around about 2017 where Donald Trump seemed to be particularly popular amongst people on the right, particularly the libertarian right here. And so... People of that particular ilk ended up becoming a little bit of a fan of the idea that actually Donald Trump was draining the swamp. And then when QAnon becomes really, really dominant uh, towards the end of 2017, the beginning of 2018, suddenly adopting the idea that actually there's, there's someone within the government who is releasing information to the public about exactly what Donald Trump is doing. And their name is Q and they've got these really amazing Q drops. By and large, and maybe some other academics in, in the country will contradict me here, it's never been a particularly popular theory here. I think in part because there's been a long history of anti-American sentiment in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and also I think we're very, very much against the idea that Donald Trump was doing any particular good anyway, which would make it a hard sell to be a QAnon stand. But there are some QAnon stands in in the country, but I don't think it's a particularly big movement here. I did notice that uh, we in Australia, we did export one of our uh, Freemason pedophile conspiracy theorists in the form of a Karen Brewer to Aotearoa, where she does her uh, YouTube videos and for for some reason never mentioned that she was in New Zealand. It was always hello, my fellow Aussies. Yeah, there's been there's been a few weird cases of Australians coming to the country in recent note and engaging in some fairly weird behaviour. So we've had at least two cases of Australians in managed isolation doing the whole COVID protest thing. You need to tell me how a PCR test work, otherwise I'm just not I'm not willing to take the test, and you'll have to make me sit in the managed isolation for two, for four weeks. 
So yeah, we, we're a little bit concerned about the fact that you are sometimes exporting some of your more notable conspiracy theorists to our country. Is it possibly people just trying to scam a free holiday? Well, except that as far as I can tell, I don't know that four weeks in managed isolation would be a particularly good holiday. I mean, you are basically stuck in your room and allowed out for one hour of walking every afternoon. I mean, it might be a really good writer's retreat. If you want to write a book, then why not spend four weeks in a hotel room where people are just bringing you food and drink the entire time? But if you actually want to go on a holiday, there are much more exciting things to do than being inside a hotel room. Something else I was curious about, uh, we spoke to Joe Mulhall from the UK about this a few weeks ago. There was a, a lot of talk online, especially at the beginning of last year, about 5G and particularly about what needed to be done about it, which was to burn down the 5G towers. And I noticed uh, there was a lot of that in the UK, Australia and New Zealand, but for some reason, not a lot of Australian 5G towers ended up going up in flames, but a number in New Zealand did. Why, why do you think that people were more willing to turn words to action in Aotearoa? Another excellent question. Now, I should actually point out that as far as I'm aware, whilst there were cell towers that were burnt at that time, none of them actually turned out to be 5G cell towers. I believe they're all 4G cell, t- cell towers. So not only were they taking cell towers, they were taking the wrong cell towers. As to why that took off? That's, that's a question which has been asked a lot, and people are still not entirely sure what it was about it. There is There are a few quite well-organized conspiracy theorist groups around the COVID-19 stuff, and prior to that, the 5G stuff, that were doing excellent work, once again in air quotes, organizing on things like Facebook, WhatsApp, Snapchat and the like. And so it's quite possible that they just had the organizational nous to be able to get people into locations and engage in this activity. But I mean, a lot like the stuff which happened in the UK and to a lesser extent in Australia, it was kind of a brief burst of activity of people doing things over the course of several weeks and then not doing it anymore. So you had this quite, this curious thing of, why did they do it? How did they organize to do it? And also, why did they suddenly stop? And at this stage, we still don't quite have a definitive answer as to what was going on there. We just know it occurred, and it's a worry because we'd like to know why it occurred. But that's as far as the story's got. Um, just recently, the um, the government in Aotearoa, New Zealand, has announced that it may be reviewing its relationship or involvement in the Five Eyes network. And that, uh, you know, the five eyes is often invoked in, well, not only conspiracy thinking, but uh, by critics of the, uh, the military industrial complex and, and so on. How, how do those two things play out? Because it seems to be the case, some have suggested that conspiracy theories is a poor substitute for a political and structural critique of society. How do you, how do you see those two things if, if conspiracies are to be examined more uh, rationally from a particularist viewpoint, how do those two approaches kind of um, inform your own thinking about conspiracy theories generally? I mean, yeah, the, the question as to our relationship with Five Eyes has been kind of a vexed one ever since we got the Snowden revelations, where I think suddenly a whole bunch of New Zealanders became very aware of how complicit the country was in harvesting data about people internationally, processing it, and then just passing it on to any member of the Five Eyes network that actually asked about it. So it was kind of a wake-up call to make us realise that we think of ourselves as a small, sleepy country, but actually we're just as involved or complicit with a whole bunch of stuff overseas that we tend to frown upon. And so there's been a great big pushback against our involvement in programs of this particular type. And of course, that that dovetails in quite nicely with the kind of conspiracy theories people have 
about the surveillance state in general, conspiracy theories which often turn out to be quite warranted as the Snowden revelations revealed. It turns out there's actually a lot more harvesting of information about foreign nationals in contravention of what you take to be the law of the land because you're able to then farm out that surveillance of your far of sorry of your local population to a foreign nation because it turns out they can look at the correspondence and then they can just they can just pass on any packet of information that they they feel that the nation state needs to know about so the realization that the stuff was going on uh, was was kind of a wake up call and i think that has led to the current Labour government to go, well, maybe we should rethink this kind of relation. And of course, on one level, this is going to inform people's conspiracy theories about things. Because once you have a government saying, we don't want to be involved in this kind of surveillance or intelligence collection, then people are going to go, well, that just goes to show that our, our conspiracy theories about this particular kind of thing, which we've always said are bad, turn out to be true. And that's not necessarily the kind of political calculus that the government has engaged in. At the same time, if you take the particularist position, which is we need to be taking these claims of conspiracy seriously and actually investigating exactly what's going on, things like the Snowden revelations and governments being much more forthright about their involvement in surveillance programs and the like is actually just a legitimate analysis of the claims of conspiracy we have in our society. It turns out that sometimes you hear a conspiracy theory, such as the Americans are spying on their own citizens using overseas agencies, and you go, oh, actually, that one turns out to be true. That's a warranted conspiracy theory now. Oh, and look at all the other bad stuff that also comes out of this at the same time. So it can, it can kind of play in both directions. It can give leverage to certain what we might call bad conspiracy theorists out there who are going to be promoting this for their own particular ends. And at the same time, was it actually going to inform people's normal trying to work out just how conspiratorial their society is, which is the kind of particular position which I've been advocating in my work for several years now. In, in your work, you've also discussed things to do with the notion of there being fake news and disinformation. How do these concepts inform conspiracy theory? Well, of course, the worry about fake news is both the worry that there is news so there are stories out there which resemble news stories, which are being produced in an inauthentic way in order to misinform or disinform the population. And of course, if you're concerned about people covering up things like conspiracies, you might also be concerned that governments are going to be using media organizations or things that look like media organizations to produce cover stories for the things that they do which has often been one of the big complaints about any kind of state-owned broadcaster or media outlet within a particular Western no nation. People go, well, they just end up being a mouthpiece for the government. And I believe there's been some stuff around around how your government's going to be funding the a ABC in future, which people are worried is going to make the ABC into much a, a much more compliant public broadcaster than something which is sufficiently independent. So there's the worry that there is fake news out there and that fake news is being used to push ideological agendas or it's being used to cover up things that we should be aware of. And of course, there's also the worry that there are people out there who insincerely label what we might take to be genuine news, news which is produced in the right way and is not at least meant to be deliberately deceptive, although it may turn out to contain errors and the like. And there are people out there who are labeling those genuine news stories as fake news because they're aware that if you're of a particular political ideology or you don't like a particular news outlet, then if you, as someone in a position of power, label that output as fake news, then that's a mental shortcut those people will take to go, I'm just going to ignore that particular story. And of course, the most famous person who's been using that rhetoric up until recently was Donald Trump, who would simply label any story he didn't like as being fake news, even though we were fairly convinced he was almost always doing it insincerely. And so this stuff all plays into 
the idea that we might live in a conspired world where there are people putting out myths or disinformation or labeling information that we should take seriously as being information we can safely ignore because it comes from the wrong kind of sources. I often see conspiracy theorists sort of uh, invoke real conspiracies like uh, the MKUltra project or Operation Mockingbird, things which actually did happen as sort of proof that a whole range of other things are also true. And often their idea of you know what MKUltra is is quite distant from the reality. What's the answer to that? Well, the answer to that is that Government shouldn't engage in secretive, terrible activity because even in a situation where maybe particular conspiracy theorists get the wrong end of the stick or they describe the situation in a way which turns out to be completely ahistorical, if people are able to point to past instances of conspiratorial activity by a powerful institution or a governmental uh, department – or they're able to point to the fact that there are regular corruption scandals or bribery scandals which wreck the halls of power every day, then that just gives people ammunition to then go, well, you know, these people are, they're engaging in, in a rum doing, and thus they're probably likely to be engaging in more rum doings behind the scenes. So the answer is that people in positions of power shouldn't engage in this kind of activity because if they don't engage in that kind of activity and we've got a kind of trusting relationship with them that we can also go, we're actually fairly sure that when they say they're not doing this thing, they really aren't doing that thing. Then you can push back against the conspiracy theories which allege they are by going, but the evidence shows they're not. But in a situation where the evidence does show they are engaged in that kind of behavior, it's a lot harder to push back because you end up going, well, yeah, I mean, sometimes the government does do bad things. I don't think they're doing a bad thing now, but I can understand why you're suspicious because, yeah, they did do that bad thing last year. This is what I'm always telling people. We just need full transparency from governments and we wouldn't have these problems. Well, yeah, I mean, full transparency basically is the kind of gold standard. You want a situation where people aren't keeping secrets from the population at all. Now, I understand why governments sometimes want to engage in secretive activities. So I've got a project that I've been working on, on or off for the last few years, looking at how we understand secrecy. So both how do we know a secret of our own is being kept and how do we justify our suspicion that a secret has been kept from us? And one of the examples I've kind of been wrestling with with respect to governmental secrecy is that if you're a government and you're engaging in a trade deal with a foreign nation, the last thing you ever want to do is tell your local public what your bottom lines are. Because if you admit publicly that our bottom lines on this trade negotiation are X, Y, and Z, then if that's public, the people who you're negotiating with, if they're doing any decent work, will be able to just read the local newspaper and find out exactly what your bottom lines are. So you need to keep that secret from the public in order to, in theory, produce a public good in future by being able to have the right kind of relationship in that negotiation. So there might be some situations which license secrecy on behalf of governments. But the problem is secrecy is always going to look suspicious because people want to know why you're keeping things secret from them. Governments are going to be loath to explain exactly why they're keeping things secret because they might reveal inadvertently what the secret is. And so, yeah, it's a very hard circle to square to work out what the appropriate level of secrecy in any democracy is going to be versus the the problem of ever keeping secrets and how people are going to respond to the idea that people are doing things behind the scenes. It's been argued in that one of the reasons conspiracy theories have recently seemingly undergone something of a experience of surge in popularity uh, has to do with uh, our online environments, especially under lockdown. What do you have to say about or have you examined the impact of social media and uh, so-called echo chambers in the perpetuation of conspiracy theories? Yes, so this is a claim which is made an awful lot that 
particular, well, actually, even before the pandemic, but particularly over the course of the pandemic, social media has played a very large role in both putting conspiracy theories in front of people and also leading to radicalization. And it's quite possible to see the downward spiral of a lot of people in Australasia. So you've got the tragic tale of Pete Evans and his downward spiral into some very, very, very weird conspiracy theory beliefs. In Aotearoa, New Zealand, we had the story of Billy TK Jr., who was a gigging blues musician, who over the first few months of the pandemic basically started doing vlogs and As those vlogs continued, he became increasingly convinced that COVID-19 was a hoax and part of a one-world government plot to bring around socialist control of the world, and thus he actually ended up being involved in politics last year trying to get a party off the ground. Luckily, that party didn't get anywhere in the polls, although Billy T.K. Jr. has conspiracy theories about why the state wasn't going to allow anyone to vote for his particular party. And so, yeah, it does really seem that social media has played a role in not only just getting the stuff in front of people, but also promoting it. And this has led to quite a lot of introspection by Google, by Facebook, and by Twitter, asking whether their algorithms really are engaging in a process of radicalizing viewers. So Twitter in particular has been quite open about the idea that they're aware that the way that their algorithm works sometimes has adverse consequences. I I was at a conference in Otago about six weeks ago where a Twitter representative was talking about the idea that Twitter wants to produce what they call algorithmic choice so that when you log on to your account, you can fiddle with the algorithm that controls your time stream. So if you want more pictures of cats and less discussion of politics, you can make the algorithm work in that particular way. Facebook has been part of the Christchurch call, looking into exactly how their system has worked to radicalize people online. Google continues to be a little bit of a black box with respect to exactly what's going on with the YouTube algorithm. And so, yeah, there's been a lot of focus on social media and the way that we've got algorithms making decisions about what they think people want to see on their timelines or which videos they're going to watch. Now, what is interesting about the social media giants in their response to the apparent problem of what their algorithms might be doing is that they don't want to open their algorithms up. They don't want to give people access to see exactly what their algorithms do. They're simply saying, no, trust us. We'll fiddle with the system and then the problem will go away. And for people like myself and the other academics who are studying this, we're going, no, that's that's not the appropriate response here. If you're admitting there is a problem, then you need to be opening those algorithms up so we can see whether this is a problem that you designed and you're not willing to admit to, or whether you've just got algorithms which have adverse outcomes, and then we might be able to suggest ways to modify that so these outcomes aren't as predictable or common as they have been in the past. But there's been huge pushback by the social media organizations to go, no, 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 trust us, it'll be fine, just trust us. Mm. That is a good point to leave it, unless you have a, a final question. Oh, the only uh, final question I had, I think, Cam, was, and what's your favorite conspiracy theory? So I'm very, very fond of the alien shape-shifting reptile hypothesis, and that's not because I find it in any way plausible. It's simply one of those things. I think I saw V at just the right age back in the 80s. And so it was kind of scarred into my mind, that image where the the female villain of V, whose name has completely escaped me, she kind of rips off her human face mask to reveal the lizard face behind, and then she swallows a, a dead rat or a dead mouse. It's actually one of these things I'm going, it's going to turn out I've completely made this scene up. It's going to be a composite of various different scenes. And it had such an effect upon me that whenever I think of alien shape-shifting reptiles, I think of those giant hovering ships sitting over LA. And it's just, it's it's an oddly calming thought. 
I think in part because if David Icke is right and we are controlled by alien shape-shifting reptiles who actually come from another dimension, then the world is in a much worse situation than we currently think it is. But at least there's a villain that we can point the finger at that we possibly could fight in V the miniseries. Uh, I guess it's sort of been disproven this week. Uh, Surely if uh, the reptiles were real... Uh, Prince Philip could have consumed enough loosh to at least make it to 100. Well, I've, I mean, the theory I've heard, and this is probably a bit of classic British sexism, is that he didn't want to receive a letter from his wife congratulating him for guessing to 100. <laughs> it would have been a bit awkward. Yeah, I mean, since, I mean, imagine it's it's the day before you turn 100 and you walk into your partner's writing room. So I I, I say, Liz, what's that you're writing there? Oh, nothing, Philip. Nothing at all. Uh, please leave the room and close the door. Not writing my, my 100th letter, are you? No, no, no. It's, uh, I'm just writing a, a letter to my friend Catherine on my royal staple head. Uh, please, please leave, Philip. It would be a very, very awkward time had by all. Well, um, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. If people would like to check out more of your work, you're on Twitter, at Conspiracism. You also have a website, which is... MRXDentist.com. And you, are also, you also have a podcast, The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, which people should check out, as well as an associated Patreon. Yes, yes, we, are. We, we, don't, we don't do it for the big bucks, but we do appreciate the occasional donation. Andy, that was very interesting. But we are out of time, so we will catch you next week. See you later. Global Infighter is up next. Goodbye. Hey, let's jump around to the renegade sound of the paranoid style. Hey, get upside down to the American sound of the paranoid style. Everybody have heard the news. Your dance with the wicked moves. Been around for many years, so polish up your banners gear and shake it, shake it, shake with fear. Wave your right till you just don't care. Anyone can do it. Paranoid style in American politics. Casey Jones, you better watch your apocalypse. Illumination and fluoridation are communist plots against the population. Hey, let's jump around to the renegade sound of the paranoid style. Hey, get upside down to the American sound of the paranoid style. Hey, kids on the right and left. You feel dispossessed If you're on the left or right I'll feel your pain tonight So shake off reality It's easy as you please Soon everyone is dancing Conspiratorially It's a paranoid style In American politics Casey Jones You better watch your apocalypse All kinds of wild interpretation Are open to the paranoid imagination Shamal Like everyone, people who are LGBTIQ+, can experience suicidal thoughts. Living Works deliver workshops that give you the knowledge to help others in the LGBTIQ+, community. Thanks to Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network, from now until the end of May, Living Works is offering workshops for the LGBTIQ+, community completely for free. Visit livingworks.com.au to learn how you can help save a life. Northwestern Melbourne Primary Health Network is a 3CR supporter.